It's good to see each of you. I want to say good morning to you. We're continuing our study of the book of Luke. It's, this is Luke's account given to us of Jesus' life and, and ministry. And uh, last week, Matt preached to us. Uh, I was very thankful for that sermon, Matt. Matt preached to us about uh, when the famous story when Jesus fed 5,000 people. And one of the things that Matt said is... Uh, he noted the way that Jesus used his disciples to, to meet practical needs around him and, uh, and, uh, and that they served out of the abundance of Christ. And there's a reason that that story is so popular, and, or it's just so well known, and it's because it shows us so much of who Jesus is. And Luke is just a master storyteller. As the, the, I've seen it more and more as we go through these stories, just how amazing uh, or how gifted Luke is at, uh, at crafting a story. And there's a general principle that, uh, that most writers hold to called show, don't tell. Show, don't tell. And uh, if you're wondering, I called a writer friend of mine this week to, to talk this out with her. Um, but if you're writing a song or a, a short story or a play or a movie or something like that, the, the idea is that your goal is to show your audience what you want them to receive rather than simply tell them about it, to, to download information. It, it's actually uh, helpful for your audience to engage the story the way that you want them to uh, if you simply show them uh, rather than tell them. You show, you don't tell. And I say that because we've been looking at these great stories in Luke of who Jesus is, and they've all been showing us things uh, about Jesus. They've been communicating to us by showing us things. Sick people is showing us something. And when we look at a story of Jesus casting out demons, it's showing us something important that we need to know. And when we look at a story of Jesus feeding 5,000 people, Luke is showing us something. But what I'm about to read, Luke is telling us something. It stands out to us because we are about to look at an important conversation that Jesus has with his disciples where he tells them, uh, based on their confession of who they understand him to be, he tells them about the journey that they are going on together, where that means he must go, and the implications that this will have for them. This is important teaching from Jesus that we see here in this passage. So if you could look with me, this is Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 27. Read with me. This is the word of the Lord. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. And then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed. And when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, 
There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Father, um, I uh, stand before your people unfit for this work. And I pray that you would uh, help me to love you and to love them well. Uh, That we would, um, on this journey together, that we would take seriously your words given to us. And that you might use them to strengthen us, to deepen us in in faith, and to look eagerly, anticipating eagerly the day when you, Lord Jesus, come back for us. Be with us now, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. So I know there's probably a good number of you in the room who are fans of of The Hobbit. J.R.R. Tolkien's fantasy literature is is just the Johnson family has a deep affection for it. Some of you might not like it, and that's okay. I'm not here to persuade. Um, but one story that, ha- that just grabs me every time we come across it is the story of Mirkwood Forest. And just to set the stage a little bit, Bilbo, our main character, is on a journey with a number of uh, a company of dwarves, and Gandalf, their powerful guardian wizard, is with them, and they come to this forest called Mirkwood, and there's no choice for them. They have to go through it in order to get where they're going. There's no going around it. And, uh, and Mirkwood is described as a dark forest, as a place where a sickness has settled over it, and it's a very dangerous place. To enter into to this forest would be very, very dangerous. And to make matters worse, Gandalf can't go with them. He has to go attend to important business elsewhere. And so what Gandalf does is he shows them a path. And he says, it's very important that you stay on this path all the way through to the end, uh, to the other side of the forest. In fact, what he says is this. He says, don't stray off the path. If you do, it is a thousand to one. You'll never find it again and never get out of Mirkwood And then I don't suppose I or anyone else will ever see you again. The path is incredibly important. Staying on the path protects them. Staying on the path guides them. And uh, for anyone who, uh, who likes to take hikes or journey in unfamiliar territory, you'll know just how um, it's hard to overstate just how important a path is, right? You, need, you always need something that kind of tells you where you are and where you're trying to go. And what's interesting to me about these stories uh, in Jesus' ministry is up till now, we have not seen a path. Like, I, I, I I can't find a place where Jesus has laid out for his disciples, here's the long term trajectory of our ministry, here's where we're going. We're in chapter 9 right now, and and this seems to me to be the first overt description that Jesus is giving his disciples of the path that's in front of them. What's amazing, even when Jesus was recruiting his disciples, he simply said, follow me. And ever since then, it's been, we're going to go to this town, or we're going to cross this sea, and we're going to go into this town and do some things. And the the disciples have been content to just one foot in front of the other follow Jesus. But now what we see is that Jesus lays out a path that he is taking his disciples on. And that's what we're looking at this morning is what is the path 
that Jesus lays out for his disciples. And I want to say that we have three things. One is we see in this passage, we see a trailhead. Uh, Secondly, what we'll see is that we have trail markers. These are important ingredients for every good path. And finally, what you'll see is a destination. A trailhead, trail markers, and a destination. Every good path has a trailhead, right? It signals for us a a key departure that's being made from the known world to the adventurous unknown world that you're headed into. And often a good trailhead will have key data in front of it, right? Like it'll have a name for the path maybe or mileage or good ones have a, a bulletin board up with a map or information about the area. And so every good trailhead usually has a key departure point and key data. And here you see right at the beginning, you see both of those things. The key departure is found where Jesus starts talking to the disciples about who the crowds say that he is. And you see there's some speculation amongst the crowd about how they understand who Jesus is. And they they say in verse 19, they say some think he's John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others that one of the prophets of old have risen. There's speculation along a kind of prophetic uh, line about Jesus being a, maybe one of the resurrected prophets or something like that, but they're all still trying to figure it out. And the key departure happens when Jesus looks at them and says, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds by saying, you are the Christ of God. Versus the crowds who, this signals a commitment from Peter. Versus the crowds who say, who are just kind of along for the ride and want to see what happens next. Peter is saying, I am on this journey with you because of who, you, who I believe you to be. And that's the data that informs his decision whether, what, that he's going to walk this path with Jesus. Because when Peter says, you are the, now he is speaking for the disciples as he is wont to do sometimes. But when Peter says, You are the Christ of God. I can't overstate just how profound it is that he said that. Again, we are in chapter 9. And this is the first time one of the disciples say with clarity, this is who, I understand this is who Jesus is now. And when, there's so much that you can unpack that he said this, but what I want you to understand is that Peter is operating with a settled conviction that Jesus is the Messiah, that he was anointed for this task just like King David was, that he is sent by God, and just as God had promised in their scriptures to do, that, that these promises that God's people had received over the course of centuries of suffering and centuries of silence through exile and Roman occupation, which they're experiencing right now, Peter is looking at Jesus and saying, you're the one. You're the one that we've been waiting for. And what's interesting to me about this is that Peter, we don't, what we don't see is, uh, is all the things that Peter will come to know about who Jesus is. In fact, this doesn't even tell us that Peter yet understands that Jesus is God that has come to be with them. And and, uh, years later, you're going to see Peter preach sermons. And there you're going to see a much fuller understanding 
of, uh, that Peter has of who Jesus is. And what's important to note here is that if you're wondering about what it means to be a Christian, if you're thinking about this for yourself, this is the trailhead. It starts here with reckoning about what you believe about who Jesus is. Who is Jesus? What do you think about that? And that doesn't necessarily mean you need to have all the theological implications of that confession worked out. It doesn't appear to be the case for Peter here in this passage. But it starts there. That's your trailhead. And from that confession, what Jesus does is he lays out some trail markers of the path of discipleship that Jesus will take them on. Every good trail, not all, some trails are better than others, but every good trail has trail markers along the way that are really important. They kind of remind you that you are indeed actually on the path. You'll see blazes painted on a tree or some rocks. And they're, they're really important, especially when the trail is hard, when you're scrambling over tough territory. These blazes are, are incredibly important. And uh, in this case, the first trail marker that we see is self-sacrifice. If you look at verse 22, Jesus says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Suffering. Rejection. Death. And resurrection. That's the trajectory that Jesus is on. And the first marker that Jesus lays out is that my life is characterized by self-sacrifice on behalf of the people that I've come for, those that I love. That's the trajectory of what Jesus is willing to do for us. And it's important that Jesus lays this out for his disciples because I want you to think about what the disciples might have been thinking when they go to Jerusalem and they witness these things happening. What do you think it was like for them as they watched Jesus suffer at the hands of an angry mob? Like, what do you think they were thinking as they watch him suffer rejection from religious leaders? And what do you think that they were thinking when Jesus takes his place on the cross, the point of extreme shame in their world, and makes his way toward death? Do you think maybe they were wondering if the last few years with Jesus were wasted? Like this Jesus movement that they've been a part of was starting to fizzle out right in front of them. Jesus is saying, I know and I'm going there on purpose. Later on in chapter 9, verse, later on in this chapter in verse 51, a profound thing is said. It says that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. That he went there on purpose. And one of the things that this tells us is that Jesus' suffering and his self-sacrifice indicates that he's on the path. And then he says that if you are going to follow me, then this call to self-sacrifice is given to you as well. And this is what I want to call imitation. Look at verse 23. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. And take up his cross daily and follow me. Uh, The way of Jesus is also the way of his disciples. And if you consider yourself 
a disciple, this is a strong call that he's given to us as well to sacrifice for the sake of those around us. And this shouldn't come as a shocker, right? Like if we're united to Jesus in faith, and our confession like Peter's is that Jesus is the Christ, then we go where Jesus goes and we suffer what he suffers. And this, this call to self-sacrifice governs our life just as it did Jesus's. And the more that we embrace this call or come to understand this call towards self-sacrifice, I think it exposes in us just a dominant form of uh, decision-making or that governs our own lives just called self-determination. I would submit to you, and, and by way of confession about my own heart, but I would submit to you that the idea of self-determination actually dictates so many of the choices that we make. This is the idea that our lives are ours to control, that we accumulate for ourselves, and we store up security and wealth and comfort and the praise of the people around us. That we, that we accumulate and discard what we don't want. That that is the ultimate goal for a good life. And this, this governing self-determination is crushing. You know why? Because there's no category for suffering in a life like that. A self-determined life tells you that suffering is failure on, of yours on some, uh, in some way. It means bad choices, or lack of wisdom, or it means incompetence, or that you're not where you're supposed to be in some way. And Jesus' call to self-sacrifice, what I would submit to you, is actually a call to freedom. And Jesus starts talking to us about how he's like, it's like he is peeling the layers back of the pressure that self-determined lives create on all of us when he starts talking in verse 24 and 25 about the life that he, uh, that he invites us into. He says, whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And then he says this, he says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses himself? What he is doing is he is saying, he is peeling the layers off of weight that self determined lives have put on us. And he's offering this paradoxically mind-bending reality that when we lose our lives for his sake, and, and when we let go of the very things that we think we cherish, all the things that we think give us security and comfort in this life, the things that we want the most for ourselves and for our families, we actually find our lives safely hidden in the life of uh, grace that he secured for us. In the economy of God's kingdom, this is so counterintuitive to us, but in the, econ- in, in the economy of God's kingdom, we don't earn. We inherit. God's people are always receiving freely from God, but they're never earning his favor. And that's a life of freedom is one that trusts God. And listen, we can lose our lives chasing the things that enchant us. We can lose our lives chasing things that we want. And we can gain the whole world.
and limitations along the way. But a life in Christ is freed from the burden of chasing anything but Christ. Not long ago, some friends of mine wrote a song that, that speaks to this. This was just a few years ago. And they talk about, this is what they're talking about, this, this idea. It's a simple song. It's called, If All, if All I Had Was Christ. It's a sweet little song. You could sing it with your families or with your kids or something like that. But the first verse goes like this. This is what they say. If all I had was Christ, I'd have nothing to gain. All I have is Christ, and I have everything. If you hear one thing this morning, I want it to be this. That if you are in Christ, you have everything. He gave his life for yours. And when you look at the cross, there's a lot you should see, but I want you to at least see this, that there was nothing he wouldn't do for you. That he looked at you and he said, that one is worth it to me. And I will suffer for her and I will love him. And there's nothing I wouldn't experience in order to redeem that one back. And so you are invited to a life of freedom. One that just as Jesus gave himself away for the sake of those that he loves, so we too are called to imitate by sacrificing what we love. By sacrificing our own very selves in order to attend to the people around us. That's the imitation that he has invited you to freely indulge in. If you are in Christ this morning, there's nothing you can lose. You are safe. All the same, that's a tough challenge, isn't it? Like that's a steep, that's a steep path. And it's there where Jesus starts to talk a little bit about the destination. And every, every path, especially when it gets hard... We start asking ourselves the question, is the destination worth it? Like this journey that we're on is so hard together, but the destination better be worth it. And Jesus starts talking about the destination here in verse 26. He's talking about the opposite, or he's talking about this uh, warning. He says, whoever's ashamed of me and my words of him Will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels? And that comes to us as a warning. But what what he's saying is that I am coming back and I am coming in glory. And just as that's a warning for those who might be uh, ashamed of Jesus in in these lives, this also comes as a promise for you. Because when he comes back and he finds you in him, you will experience the opposite of the shame and rejection that he's talking about. You will will come to encounter God's wide embrace and you will hear the words that we all long to hear. Well done. Good and faithful servant. Come and enter into the joy of your master. 
A couple years ago, I heard a story about a hike where about a half hour west of where I grew up in Virginia. It's called the Crozet Tunnel, and you might have heard about it. But it's an old abandoned railroad tunnel that cuts right through a mountain. It's very long. I've never actually done it myself, but I heard a story about it from, from a guy that I know. I'd love to do it if we ever get back up there anytime soon. But it's, but it's a long and dark tunnel, and you can't see the other end when you get started on it. And as the way the story goes is that this, uh, this, this guy I know took his kids, and they started walking through this tunnel with a number of other dads and their children, and they just start making their way through this dark tunnel. And they all have their headlamps on. And it starts out as really interesting and fun. But the farther they got, they said it felt more like darkness was just wrapping itself around them. And the light behind them was growing smaller and smaller and smaller. And one of the children predictably got scared and asked the question, why are we doing this? And the man says that his friend said what he wished he would have said. To see the light that's on the other side. Listen, I don't know with detail or any kind of intimacy what your life looks like. And I I don't know how much darkness there is or what suffering you're returning to when you leave here. But I do know this. Darkness is not forever. And neither is your suffering. Your sins have been forgiven. And God does not abandon his people. And Jesus is not ashamed of you. And God's glory is the light at the end of the tunnel. And his kingdom will be established. And you have a place there. Amen. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. And Father, I ask that these things that you're speaking to us and speaking over us, I pray that you will convince our souls of them. That you'll help us to embrace the idea of sacrificing ourselves for the good of others. And that you'll help us to appreciate Jesus, just what you've done for us. And I ask for my friends as we sojourn together in faith, I pray that you will give us a great sense of the freedom that we have been invited into in Jesus. Help us to operate with a settled conviction about who you are and where you're taking us. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.